0: You know, it's kind of weird thinking back that a couple minutes of time difference or just a couple different decisions, and it would have been a, hey, Mom, sick day in the mountains, instead of what it turned into.
1: I'm Matt Hanson, and you're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of risk and rescue that take us deep into the Jackson Hole backcountry. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero. A project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to eliminate fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. You can support this project and the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by making an online donation today. Go to TetonCountySar.org slash donate.
2: This episode of The Fine Line is brought to you by Roadhouse Brewing Company, supporting backcountry safety in the Jackson Hole community since 2012. Located at the heart of the Tetons, Roadhouse Brewing Company embodies the authentic spirit of the West, where your word is your honor, quality is your craft, and adventure is rooted in your soul. For more information on Roadhouse and its town square pub and eatery, visit roadhousebrewery.com.
1: The Sliver Couloir in Grand Teton National Park slices through the east face of Nez Perce Peak. About a 1,000 feet long, very steep, and just a few ski lengths wide, it is one of the few skiable coulars visible from the valley below. For backcountry skiers and snowboarders, the sliver is known as a bottom-up objective, meaning you climb directly up your descent route. This approach allows a skier to gain direct knowledge of the terrain and snow conditions they are planning to ski, but also means they are exposed to any hazards above, such as sliding snow, falling rocks, or other humans. Like many big lions in the Tetons, The sliver was infrequently skied only about 20 years ago. Now it might see several people in a single day. Fueled by the potent combination of social media and digital mapping, the hassle and expense of resort skiing, and the ease of modern equipment, backcountry skiing has reached a fever pitch across the West and the Tetons. This increase in skiers means conflict is inevitable. It's certainly a relatively new hazard in the Tetons that people are considering when they are planning their day in the mountains. The issue reared its ugly head on January 22, 2022, when skiers Colin Binko and Michael Martin encountered a lone snowboarder at the base of the sliver. All three had eyes on the same prize, but neither party talked to the other. After climbing about halfway up the couloir, Binko and Martin were subsequently descended upon by the snowboarder, with Martin being overcome by cascading snow and tumbling several hundred feet down the steep, narrow shaft. He luckily survived but required a helicopter evac by Grand Teton National Park Rangers and Teton County Search and Rescue. The accident exposed the growing risk of skier-on-skier conflicts in the Tetons and how critical it is for people to talk to one another in the backcountry, especially in high-traffic, high-consequent zones like the Sliver. Like, hey man, how's it going? Where are you headed today? Also, our plan is to go up here and ski that big thing. How about you? In this episode of The Fine Line, We'll first step back from this incident and talk about how to navigate the sometimes delicate skill of intergroup communication in the mountains. Jessica Baker, an AMGA certified ski guide who has more than two decades in the Tetons, gives us her valuable perspective on how things have evolved over the years. Then we hear directly from Martin and Binko about what happened in the sliver, while alpinist Ryan Burke gives us his point of view about coming onto the scene, as well as some new ways to think about backcountry etiquette. It must be said that I have not spoken to the snowboarder, so I don't know what his intentions were that day. It's important to me, as it should be for everyone in the backcountry, to not propagate the culture of shaming by dragging anyone under the bus. We should all take this incident as a learning experience so that we can avoid similar accidents in the future. The more we talk about this, the more we can positively shift our culture. The more times we can find space to let go of our egos and be friendly to one another at the trailhead and on the skin track, the better our experiences will be in the long run within the incredible ski ecosystem of the Tetons.
2: Okay, well, my name is Jessica Baker, and I'm a professional mountain guide, professional skier, a mother of two, been in the industry for a long time. I've been skiing in the Tetons since the winter of 99, 2000, that was my first season in this region. I spent a lot of time guiding in these mountains, but also guiding all over the world, anywhere from up in the Arctic to down in South America or right here in the backyard between Wyoming and Montana. Well, I started trying to ski the Grand Teton in 2004. And I recall all my attempts up until I got it in 2006 for the first time, not once did I have a conflict, not once did I have to worry about another party in there. So I think it was relatively quiet during that time. There were very few women that had even done it during that time, 2006, actually the the day that I got my first summited ski of the Grand Teton, there was one other party on there. It was actually Jimmy Chin and a friend of his. I recall that that was the first time I ran into someone else trying to ski the Grand Teton. And yet it was a friend, it was very, very easy to communicate. We were headed up the Ford as he was about to ski. It was very, very easy to work with each other there. No one was in the construction. I remember that being very fluid situation, very easy to work with. Many years passed and then, you know, I started getting opportunities to potentially guide the Grand Teton. I also personally skied it again. And I would say even starting in 2010, 2011, when I started trying to ski the Grand Teton again, there were many more people attempting. My timing had to be really spot on. You had to start really early. If you saw another party, you'd have to start weighing that option early on. Like if you were working with headlamps up into the TP glacier zone and there was a party ahead of you with headlamps on, you started to fully consider the timing of that and what that meant. You tried to suss out how many people are in front of you or vice versa. Even if you had people behind you and you could count the headlamps, you started sort of taking that into account. Really in the last five to seven years is when I've consistently noticed that you just really have to plan around other parties around you or consider what day it is or suss out the parking lot scene. I've gone so far as to like ask people where they're going in the parking lot just to kind of get a feel for the bulk of the traffic and and see what I can do to sort of mitigate my plan and or work around it but yeah, maybe like the f- last five to seven years, the biggest shift, but it's been progressive. It's been, it's been building and, and I'm just as much to blame as anyone else. I've been touting the Tetons for a long time. It's a wonderful place to be and, and I get it. Everyone wants to be here.
1: How do you approach somebody in the parking lot or on the skin track, knowing that it may be complex, knowing that it may, people may be defensive or maybe unwilling to engage in what their plan is
2: part of my strategy in, in communicating with other people is you know is is this person going to be directly involved with me in some way shape or form today or are they in an entirely different zone so if you're either like gleaning you know you heard them speaking you know they're already headed to another zone or something else then I just don't I usually don't engage But if I start to see a group getting ready or people getting ready and i can hear them talking about a place i might be also be going to or i look at their packs and i look at gear and i'm like okay today they have spikes and a ice axes, and we're all starting at 4 a.m this morning all right what's going on where are these people going and then i'll usually you know casually ask i'll just be like hey how's it going and you know where are you guys headed today and generally people are forthcoming and Willing to, to provide that and then they usually ask me where I was planning to go and if it happens to be the same place, generally we try to kind of sort that out, um, a lot of it is going to be determined by pacing conditions, forecasts for the midday afternoon, you know, is there increasing hazard. Can, can we accommodate more than one party in this zone today? And just sort of either discuss through that or at least start to consider that after having that initial conversation. I'm not saying that it's always like the easiest thing. It's not easy to, to like get the initial information that someone's headed the same way you're going also. But, you know, people have honest intentions of going places without ever having known that someone else was also going to go there. If, if they're willing to communicate when you first reach out or first touch base with somebody, I think talking through it, is probably a good thing like okay well we were planning to go to the same place today what's your strategy for the up track or are you guys a relatively fast party you guys going to take your time you know just try to like talk through pacing I mean sometimes pacing can sort some of these things out pretty quickly and sometimes it can make it worse so you sort of have to assess that if parties seem to be pretty close like let's say you know you're going to be with someone from the parking lot you understood they're headed your same direction and you've decided to go as well and your pacing seems to be the same. And if you're a relatively low number of people, sometimes it does make sense to join forces. Not necessarily like, ooh, let's be a perfect party of four now, but you know, maybe you do decide to go one at a time and one person stays behind and one person goes first and you help send everybody through, even though you're not necessarily all part of the same party. You can create solutions like that or you create more of a gap for yourself if conditions and, and hazard allow.
1: Because it seems to me that approaching somebody in the parking lot or on the skin track or wherever is a skill.
2: Yes, I can't say I've I've um, perfected that skill. <laughs> I think the best way to do it is just to start with a friendly interaction and 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 feel them out. And and not everyone's going to be really open to to telling you where they're going. Um, some people may just walk away even. But, but I think if we can start those conversations, it's not a bad thing. I think a lot of people are worried like, well, if I say where I'm going, someone else will decide to go there too. That can happen. It can. But I think generally people have a general sense of where they're headed. You can at least glean enough of that initially to understand if you need to start discussing more.
1: Have you ever had to change your plans based on going to this same place with another group?
2: Yeah. Mostly on the Grand Teton. Whether you were able to find them in the parking lot or it was later up somewhere on the mountain. Um, that's just one like the Ford Stetner. It's really hard to pull off a safe ascent and descent. If you have either if you're ascending, someone's skiing down on top of you and flushing you out, or vice versa. I bailed on the Grand Teton a lot because of that reason and because of conditions too. But that's been a tough one. You can't always communicate with parties ahead. Like I've been through the ice step in the stutner, like fully soloing the ice and getting sloughed on and i'm like someone's above me i go find the next rappel and i rappel out of there because i'm like i can't stay under this this is just like not gonna work there have been many times where you know i'm on wimpy's or albright or uh, shadow maybe lining up one of the couloirs off of those runs that really do only accommodate four or five, six tracks, and then it starts to get kind of funky. I've changed my plan due to either two parties show up at the same time and one gives to the other or one party gets it just before I get there. and, And then I shift my plan. I've also been the first person in those spaces too. So I've been on both sides of that. Then I've also been like on approach to something, for example, the sliver. You get to the top of the shadow, shadow peak, you see a party already ahead of you descending into that basin of the shadow basin about to, you know, they're going to start their boot pack 30 minutes before you are. And you kind of have to wonder if that's going to work or you see someone who's already quarter of the way up and you're like, well, by the time I'm in the middle of it, they're going to be strapping their skis on ready to ready to go. So that I've bailed off the sliver plenty of times for that reason. I've been in technical places that require repels which there are actually many in the Tetons and uh, there's a backup at the rappel, And then you also know that there's gonna be a backup in the run and potential slough issues, bailed off those. <laughs> I think also knowing like your alternatives is really important. So every day I go into the backcountry, I generally have a pretty good sense of my route plan, but in the back of my head, I'm sort of like, but also these aspects are skiing well, These are the places that have like a more stable snowpack. These are sort of some of the potential alternatives that could work for me on this day because you never know what you're going to run into. It could be a group of people. It could be a more hazardous situation than you anticipated. It could be a client's too tired or you're too tired or mentally you're not feeling it. So having some of those alternates is always a good idea also.
1: Yeah, having a plan B, plan C maybe. Plan B, C, D. I want to kind of just mention that it's not just the really tight, narrow, rocky zones, but just skiing, multiple groups skiing a slope on a a day when the avalanche hazard is elevated, being skied on by another group, you know, that might cause an avalanche, even on something like Wimpy's or 25 shorter or anything of any of those.
2: Totally, I've been that person. Not even that long ago, I can think of a time I was on 10696, and there were like multiple parties kind of approaching 10696 from different angles. One was kind of coming from the southeast. One was coming from the north. One was kind of coming up like the east rib, and we were poised and ready to ski. I was actually doing a photo shoot at the time, and. I had my photographer kind of tucked in under a rock and I kind of wanted to ski this like slightly steeper rib off the skier's right side. And, you know, I kind of waited for people to get out of the way below me, like, so they weren't in the slide path. And then the people over on the east rib were kind of out of my way. Regardless, the people from the north were still further away. So it seemed like most people were out of harm's way if something were to happen. And I hop into this line, I jump a little rock. I land and I hit the button and I freaking take out the entire slope of the whole face. And thank God I waited for those people to move out of the way because I surely would have wiped them out. I took out their skin track below me. I stood there kind of in shock that I had just done it that big and everyone was fine. No one got hurt. But like for a split second, I was like, if my timing had been any different, I would have wiped people out. Yeah, I think we have to be fully aware of that. And it's hard because if you've got somewhere first, and then there are all these people kind of coming up underneath you, it seems like you have the right of way. But the truth is, is if people are below you, they are, and you have to manage that in some way. And if your idea is just to go, sometimes that can be really damaging. And sometimes waiting can be really, really frustrating. So I don't think there's a perfect answer there. But I think it's really important that people are paying attention to that array of situations that may be below you. And then if you're someone that's approaching a slope and you see people ahead of you and you have a choice in your route plan for ascension and it can get out of the way of the, the actual slide path, well, then that should be your choice because you can't dictate what other people are going to do per se hopefully we're all watching out for each other but maybe they don't see you or maybe they don't know you're there and you know if you're in the slide path or in the alpha angle that that's like come into you are kind of asking for it in that way too so i think it's sort of this balance between responsible parties ascension parties and descent parties and everyone should should really try to keep their wits about them and and knowing that we have more crowds now just try to respect everyone that's out there and and not everyone's making all the right choices all the time but we shouldn't make a bad choice because we're mad at somebody.
1: <laughs> that was Jessica Baker, professional skier and AMGA certified ski guide. You can learn more about Jessica by visiting skidivas.com. Now let's turn to Michael Martin and Colin Binko and the sliver couloir. So
3: I'm Michael Martin. I am from Eugene, Oregon, and then uh, moved to Utah a couple of years ago for school where I got a degree in outdoor recreation with an emphasis in outdoor education and then moved here to jackson this past october i'm working full-time at rei back in the ski shop as a ski and bike tech
0: hi i'm colin binko i grew up in rochester new york i spent about 10 years in pittsburgh pennsylvania spent the last two in boston but hanging out in new hampshire as much as i could and moved to jackson in july Uh, I teach at the middle school. I'm going to teach music at the middle school, choir, band, guitar, um, and then help out with their mountain bike club and climbing club over there. And then also tech part-time at RAI as a ski and bike tech.
3: Growing up in Oregon, we'd go out occasionally, a couple times a season. And then as I started getting older, I'd start to take the bus from the local ski shop to Bachelor a couple times a season and a couple of the other small resorts and stuff.
0: So I got into... Uh, backcountry skiing and climbing and mountaineering through working at a ski shop, both in Pennsylvania, Willie Ski Shop in Western Pennsylvania, and then through the Pittsburgh Explorers Club, which hosts a mountaineering school.
3: It was actually from TGR's film, Tight Loose. There's that segment where they're in the tordrillos and, like, skiing big spine walls off of that and booting them and camping. And I was like, yeah, I want to do that. Like, that looks sweet.
0: It may sound weird to have a mountaineering school in Pittsburgh, but it's Pittsburgh's a really, really easy city to access a bunch of different things. Flights are cheap. So it was, you know, up to Mount Washington and up to the Adirondacks in New York for ice climbing and trips out to Mount Whitney. And it's a huge network of mountaineers who really like to get after it. And a lot of my climbing and skiing partners came through there.
3: So I got my first touring set up just after that. So this is 2016-17. Started out just super small stuff. I have an aunt and uncle that live up in Alaska and ski a bunch, and they had given me Bruce Tempers Staying Alive in Avalanche Terrain, Um, so I started studying that, probably still go through it at least once a season. Um, I'll usually try like mid-season to go back through it, just to refresh.
0: Through that, I went on and having uh, my SPI through the AMGA and guided for REI up in the New England area for a couple years, and then also took you know, went through the rec courses and then this year completed the Abbey Pro 1 course through AAI up in Bozeman um, just a couple months ago.
3: And then in 2018, summer of 2018 is when I moved out to southern Utah. One of my brother's really close friends had been living in Salt Lake for a good amount of time by that point. So, Ended up getting in touch with him and essentially just asking if he'd be down to take a Gumby out and show me around the Wasatch. And then in kind of start of winter 2019-20, one of my bosses who ran the outdoor shop that I worked for at the university had his level one pro at that point and was starting to teach. So then I started going out with him a bunch Every time I went out with him, I'd learn just an immense amount of information from digging snow pits to traveling, that sort of stuff. And then that was the first winter that I got into an avi course finally for kind of the more formal education side of things.
0: Gone through the volcanoes, organized and led a trip up to Alaska on the Pika Glacier last year with a ton of friends from the Explorers Club. That was a great and super successful trip. And Pretty much when I was up in New England, spent every waking minute I could up in that Mount Washington Valley area. Certainly deal with a lot of wind slab up there, and that's the main issue. Yeah, and then moved to Jackson and have been out bank skiing and trying to get after it as much as I can when I'm not teaching.
3: We got to the parking lot about just before 5. We We started walking pretty much at 5 a.m., and the morning was... There's that big inversion layer, so it was pretty socked in feeling and like kind of lightly snowing as we started to skin. And we just locked into that first gear and weren't moving slow, weren't moving super fast, but just kind of went and didn't stop. Probably just stopped every hour or so to drink some water and like have a shot block or something and then kept going. That morning was probably one of the best I've ever felt going into the mountains. I mean, I felt fantastic felt fit and like we were moving well. And then, um, right about sunrise, we got above that inversion layer. So we were like looking at the grand and Tewanot and Owen could start to get glimpses of the sliver. And then there's like this crazy cloud layer almost at our feet spanning the whole valley and
0: pretty spectacular. Definitely one of the, the better morning views I've ever had. Yeah. And I think, yeah, we just kind of got out of the parking lot and kicked it in gear and Weren't schemo racing, but we're just kind of trucking along the whole time and stops were quick. I think the decision wasn't so much about first tracks. It was just about risk mitigation and trying to get up there first and just to beat other people to to be out of the way of other groups going for it and also trying to do the sliver, go back up it again and wrap into East Hourglass. We just wanted to give ourselves as much buffer of daylight in case rope got hung up or something weird happened we'd have a little more time to
3: operate because we came up and got to the spot on shadow where you can drop into that cirque, transition there drop down put skins back on skinned up the apron yeah so about 9 20 and then we kind of stopped and had a bit of a break some water hung out for a minute and that's when we decided to dig our hasty pit and go through an ect
0: yeah so we Pulled up off the booter, maybe thirty feet to the side. Mm-hmm. Dug a little ECT about a meter down, just to see, and not more so. I would say we we knew what we were going to find, and maybe just for the sake of of doing it, just to confirm that, and just to keep that learning process going. But so we dug it and found. I think it was like ECT N at twenty, you know, twenty six at about thirty centimeters down. Not a whole lot going on. But when we were doing that, there was a sugary layer on top of a pretty stout crust. And we had talked actually before, like, wow, okay. And we saw a little bit of sloughing in the couloir. We're like, okay, we feel good about booting this. We'll, you know, get to the top and probably just make a off, And anything that's going to slough, will we'll slough off. And then we'll just ski, you know, what's underneath that. And we're pretty stoked to ski some chalky snow. I got to say, coming from the East Coast, I'm just excited to have snow. (laughs) So, yeah, it wasn't, I don't think either of us were anticipating, like, the best powder turns and charging for that. I think it was just more stoked to be, you know, out there with friends on what was shaping up to be a beautiful day and just kind of enjoying the adventure of it.
3: I, I didn't notice any tracks going up. Um, There was like that six to eight inches of kind of sugary snow from there was that one little storm like two days before. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of where that new snow had come from. And it didn't look like it had gotten skied the day before that we were up there. At least to me, it didn't look like it had gotten skied. Yeah, you're right.
0: It was like where the apron kind of like the ridge line of the apron, if that makes sense. And we were 30 feet off of that.
3: It was as we were breaking down our pit and kind of getting our packs ready to go back up when we saw the solo snowboarder kind of from across the cirque coming down yeah, he and
0: dropped out of sight for a minute and kind yeah. of came up the other side of the, of the apron mm-hmm. and popped up maybe 20, 30 feet ahead of us on the boot.
3: Yeah. And, uh, just kind of like had his head down and, this is probably just some Teton Hardo that's out here and he's just moving fast and wants to get to the top. Like we'll get second tracks. I guess he'll probably be at the top transition when we get up there and life will be good. I was expecting
0: (laughs) to kind of like, yeah, we even joked about that. Like Teton Hardo, like, Oh, this guy's out here solo shredding. We were not racing, but moving pretty quick in the morning. And he came up and caught up to us and you know, kind of snuck around and got in front of us, but we were like, man, this dude must be just, like, super stout, you know, moving in the mountains quick. Yeah. He didn't say anything to us. He just kind of came in from the other angle, got up, looked back down at us, and then kept trucking. And it was kind of when he popped up ahead, I was, I think, clipping my waist belt on my pack or yeah, right at that stage. And we were kind of, like, you know, walking back towards the boot pack from where we had, you know, our little safe zone. And he glanced back at us and, you know, in in hindsight, I should have yelled up something to him right there. Like, Hey man, good for you. You get first tracks, you know, we'll see you at the top or anything, but the whole, we were kind of in this 30 feet, give or take 10 feet, based on the ebb and flow of, of, you know, if the section was moving quicker, if you were waist deep or not waist deep, but if you were boot deep or just on your front points, um, And he kept looking back at us the whole way as we were going up the couloir. Every maybe 10, 20 steps would glance back at us. Um, I was ahead of you by about 10 to 20 feet. I think I just had my pack on quicker. And we were just kind of all moving pretty much in sync for the first half of going up it.
1: Was there a thought of, "Ah, maybe we should go do something else now that there's somebody up there ahead of us?
3: Didn't really cross my mind. I mean, I've skied... Like if you go out and ski Terminal Cancer, which I was there right as COVID was starting. I mean, there was a train of two groups of two ahead of us, a group of four right behind our tails, a group of five right behind them. Like we probably passed like 20 people on the way down and it's just kind of like work down slow, work past the groups, let people have a heads up sort of deal. So from that experience, that's kind of what I figured it'd be like as we were going up and behind this guy is just he would kind of pick his way down the top, we'd be able to get over. Or on the flip side, just he'd be transition ready to go when we got to the top and then he'd take off and we'd have some snacks, have some water and chill until he was out of there.
0: Yeah, I've had that that same thought of kind of in retrospect of like, okay, if we had showed up and there were – four people halfway up it or even you know if if this guy was halfway up it you know we probably would have waited for him to finish come back down and and then go and again like i think just that assumption that we made of like hey this dude is you know a couple car lengths ahead of us and we're all kind of moving at the same speed you know i was just like oh and and communication again is is the big takeaway from this I keep going back to like, I I was up front, like I know better than this, like risk management, you know, we spent all this time, you know, like reading books and taking avalanche classes and, you know, trying to just like risk management's always on my mind. And to have this guy go by and not yell something at him. But also with him looking back at us, I assumed that, oh, this guy knows we're here, we're moving at a similar speed to him. He's just a little bit above us. You know, yes, this is a line that's Bottom to the top. There's not a top access line. But this dude's out here solo. He must know what he's doing. He must have the mountain sense to know that, like, oh, I'm going to wait at the top for these guys who are a couple minutes behind me. And then, you know, like, I was expecting to show up and have him fully clipped in and ready and be like, hey, beat you guys to it. I'm like, sweet. Congratulations. And, uh, you know, him to ski and then us to ski. And a little bit of me was actually... Yeah, I was like, okay, he's gonna, he's gonna, you know, slough off everything. And then that's something that we don't have to worry because he snaked it off of us. But yeah, I, I guess wrongfully, without yelling up at him, I just assumed that, like, hey, you know, this is a, a tight line. There's certainly, we're moving together within the realm that we could all safely enjoy this, this little sliver and, you know, have a great day. And it was, you know, it's kind of weird thinking back that a couple minutes of time difference or just a couple different decisions. And it would have been a, hey, mom, sick day in the mountains, instead of what it turned into.
3: For the lower half of the line, the boot track like really hugs the rock wall. Then as you come up through the middle, it gets firm. And then as you get into, I guess, like the top third of the line, the boot pack is kind of forced back into the middle of the sliver so it was we were going through that and then right above that the line kind of dog legs a little bit and you can't really quite see around the corner to the top of the line so by the time we had reached that point the snowboarder had gone out of sight and we're kind of in the middle of the gun barrel essentially I mean it's a steep mid to high 40 degree pitch at that point and yeah we're like right in the middle of it so I had actually Just yelled up to Colin, this isn't a super sweet spot. Let's move quick, get through this, and uh, get back into a safe spot.
0: Yeah, and I was close to that dog leg, and you were kind of like right in the middle of where you didn't want to be right when you yelled that. Yeah. And at that point near the top section, the snowboarder, which I think I yelled back at you, I was like, man, this dude is booking. And he just like turned on the jets and disappeared around that dog leg come to find out later looking at pictures which took us a couple of days before someone sent us a picture he transitioned before the top kind of in that last steep section he transitioned right before um there's no tracks coming from up there which explains why it was so quick for him to come back down kind of nearing that dog-like section i wonder if he just had the same thought of hey this is like not the best spot to be hanging out and i'm just gonna book it you know i would hope it's like Not like, hey, I'm going to get up here so I could ski down on these guys. He disappeared around the dog leg. Mike yelled up, like, hey, this is not a good spot. I'm like, yeah, let's kick it into high gear. We maybe had five, six more steps. And then looking up, the snowboarder reappeared on his descent. Yeah, I was just assuming that because he knew we were there, we kind of put him in this expert halo of he is out here solo. We're in pretty good shape. Mike's a super fast runner. We were moving quick that this dude must know what's up. And I didn't really think that he would ski down on us until looking up, he appeared at that dog Like A little bit of slough came down and I looked up and he paused for half a second. And then I went to go yell something, took a breath in, and then he you know, snowboarder, went down another five feet, got a bunch of speed, and then horizontally cut right across right across the, the top there, kind of right underneath that dog leg, which, you know, speed in a cut without, you know, I, I hope it wasn't an intentional ski cut. We don't think it is, but what it looked like a lot was a ski cut, and what it produced was what that would produce, and he kicked off a bunch of slough. I was about 20 feet below him, and had thankfully, for a second, for whatever reason, I don't know if I was about to yell something back at you, but I had taken like two extra kicks in, so I had a pretty good stance in it. Saw the slough coming, just hit the deck right into self-arrest position, and it it ripped over me. Once it let up, I looked back down at Mike, who was maybe 30 feet below me. And by the time it got to you, it was ripping um, and moving quick and a bunch more than just a little slough, but was down to that hard crust surface and taking everything off
3: with it. I was about to yell heads up to Colin and then saw how much it was picking up and just, like, try to dig my ice axe and crampons as deep as I could into that self-arrest position, and, and yeah, I mean, it hit me pretty full force and was up over my head initially, I think. <laughs> I think it,
0: like, hit you and kind of like Like a wave hitting you. Yeah,
3: And then um, whatever was under my feet gave out at that point, and I was trying to self-arrest and stop and then caught the tip of my crampon and flipped out of the snow onto my back and was trying to fight to get back onto my stomach to try to jam my ice axe back in. And then at one point, my my skis were still in an A-frame carry. Um, So Colin said you actually saw this. Yeah. Where my, um, the tail of my ski dug into the snow and actually slowed me down a fair bit and then ripped the side out of my pack. And that kind of threw me back over on my back or head downhill on my stomach. I'm not really sure at that point, but was kind of getting bounced around a fair bit again, trying to fight to get onto my stomach when I could. And when, uh, I couldn't try to get over onto my stomach, just like throwing my arms over my face, trying to protect my head and uh, wait again for that moment to try be able to get back onto my stomach to try to stop again. And the whole time I was going down too, I knew of kind of that exit cliff is probably like five to eight feet.
0: Yeah. Somewhere around there.
3: So I was trying as hard as I could to stop before then. Um, but at some point bounced off of a wall and was tumbling again. And I think that's Around the time, I think I bounced off of one wall and then got forced over that little exit cliff and then was a couple inches underneath the snow when it started to slow down and just fought as hard as I could to get back on top and luckily popped out on top of the snow right as it settled.
0: By the time it got to you, it's like you were getting in, you had your feet in and were like heading into the wall to try and brace yourself and it just hit you like a wave. Flipped you on your back, I remember just yelling down at you, just, roll over, roll over. You got to your stomach and then your crampon hit and it ragdolled you out of the snow. And that's where you're like the ski dug in, held you for like half a second, got you out of the, the main bulk of it. You ripped your pack out and then you disappeared. Like I couldn't see you after that in just like the wash of everything. And then, yeah, I couldn't hear anything from the bottom. I couldn't see if you were above the snow or not. I was standing up there on the bed surface. Just like first thought was like, how do I get down this? Having crampons on, being on a smooth surface. I was like, I can't transition right now. So I just started down climbing, looked up. The snowboarder was standing there kind of shell shocked. I yelled at him I was like, can you see him? He just like looked at me and I was like, can you see him? Do you have eyes on him? And he was like, no, 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 I can't ski your slide path. I was like, you're in downhill mode, like go. So he started working his way down through it. I'm trying to rip down as fast as I can through it. And then he got to that like rock where it kicked you before you went over the little band there and signaled up that, you know, your head was above snow, that he could see you. And then it kind of like still made it down as fast, but was a little more cautious once we knew that you were
3: not buried. First thing that I tried to do was yell up that I was on top. Um, I think I yelled it two or three times, like I'm on top, I'm on top, I'm on top. And then I was still kind of like on the edge of the slough path. So there was a little safe zone just to my left. So took a couple steps over, um, when I was moving and trying to get kind of facing back uphill, get over out of the way of anything else that could come down, um, noticed a lot of blood in the snow. So that's kind of when I was like, okay, what's wrong. And just kind of started like head, neck, spine. That feels okay. Where's the blood coming from? Okay, it's coming from my elbows, it's coming from my arms. Okay, what else hurts? And it, it was pretty much ankle, knee, hip, all on the right side is like, okay, that hurts. Can't tell how bad it is yet. And then just try to calm myself down essentially and like stop shaking and hyperventilating. <laughs> So the snowboarder got to me within a couple of minutes of the slide stopping at that point. Like he asked if I was okay. And I was like, for the most part, like I'm alive. <laughs> That's sweet. I'm not under the snow. And then before Colin had gotten to me, I'd actually taken my pack off, handed the snowboarder, my med kit and was like, I need this, 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 and this was working on getting my shirt off. Cause I was drenched to the bone at that point um I had just taken off my shell my ski shell and so I was just wearing bibs and like a long sleeve thermal base layer so then Colin got to me and we kind of started running through those assessments together got my shirt off he had that extra dry layer in his pack so we threw that on right away yeah
0: we're both woofers have the wilderness first responder and yeah like that was actually I think the the calmest part of everything yeah um even like as it started, I think like just training and seeking out that training, because it was like, oh, Mike just disappeared. Here's the checklist of what needs to happen to find him. Okay, we found Mike. Okay, Mike's here. And we both kind of used to like we were assessing yourself almost as well. <laughs> but we both like just jumped into that that patient triangle, um, that just gets drilled so much in that and, and thankfully through, you know, other jobs we both had, we've both are up to date on our certs, but run through the practices just from being out there and Went through, got your, you know, you're like, I'm freezing. We got your shirt off. After we determined, you know, like blood in your arms, we just threw another layer on and just made sure any life-threatening injuries weren't present. And then moved you over to the, the where we had all of our gear stashed. Just wanted to get to the blade jackets, the warmer clothes, everything else we had. And then once we got over there went through the full assessment, see if there's anything we missed or anything in there and started formulating what our next steps were. At that time, there was a party of four that saw us from across and skied down. And, and one guy came up, Tommy, I don't know his last name, but he was awesome. He showed up and, and saw it and was like, what do you guys need? I have a stove. I'm going to start boiling water. Here's an extra belay jacket. You need dry socks. And he just kind of jumped into action and, you know, boiled probably three liters of water plus for us and yeah. stuck around and just kind of the other people in the community there definitely, you know, who were there, stopped what they were doing and, and came to help. Once we, we got your boot off and Mike's ankle just swelled up immediately and we spent probably about an hour just trying to figure out if we can get out of here on our own um, and how feasible that would be. And then we reached a spot where we were like, all right, we got to make a call. Tried to send a text out using the inReach as well. To my roommate, who was and my wife through the inreach, and just figuring like they'll know who to who to call. Um, my roommate's a guide in the valley as well. I was like he'll know the people to get this the ball rolling. And then when we pulled the inreach, the snowboarder left and and took off probably like an hour after the slide. Um, Tommy, who was there, and his group was in the kind of the valley between the two there, and, and they had service which became the landing zone for the helicopter, but they had service there. So he skied down, was able to make a call from that spot when he got service and yelled back up that the chopper was coming in an hour. I didn't realize at the time, but the te- one text that made it through to my roommate, it just was like Mike fell a thousand feet stable, but unable to self-evacuate. Can you call SAR and, and get the ball rolling? Um, so he did that and they were like, yep, we got the reach. Another guy just called it in and they then start had it. My wife and my roommate, um, started heading up to the park to just kind of help out.
3: From my perspective, everything was moving so fast Mm -hmm. at that point. I have no clue how long it really was. I think at that point I was kind of like, I'm either going to like make some dumb jokes and just like keep trying to do the next right thing and just smile and laugh, or I'm going to burst out into tears. It's one of the two. (laughs) So I was just kind of like, cool, I'll make the occasional dumb joke, try to keep things a little bit light. (laughs) and not break down.
0: (laughs) Ryan and Lewis, two other skiers who had planned to do the same thing we were doing, just starting a little later in the day, had showed up and had saw Tommy's group as they were leaving. And they came up and stayed with us and then ended up skiing out with myself um, after it, who were just another like example of, of the right kind of people in the, in the back country there. Um, And certainly what's been the majority of our experience both being new to town but skiing here they showed up and helped walk you down to the landing zone mm-hmm. and then yeah stayed around and skied out were just awesome all around awesome guys Yeah, when
4: I first got there, my, my gut reaction was, you know, something has just happened, but I, I missed it. And the kind of the energy level had dissipated a little bit, you know, helicopter was on the way. So there wasn't a lot of, you know, fear or, you know, high energy. There was kind of just a lot of like head scratching of kind of what happened, putting the pieces together, trying to understand who needed help and, uh, you know, what the situation was. My name is Ryan Burke. I'm a licensed professional counselor. I've been doing that for 10 years uh, locally in Jackson, Wyoming. I've been in uh, kind of recreating the backcountry, whether in summer or winter for the last uh, 15 years. Yeah, my friend and partner, Louis Smurl, and I had Gone up the approach on Shadow Mountain. We, our goal was to ski the East Hourglass couloir, which you have to kind of go from the bottom up, up a sliver, and then down, rappel down into the East Hourglass. So we didn't get to the top of Shadow Mountain until 11 a.m. Um, the day was, uh, you know, crisp but sunny. And we, when we approached the kind of the coal, that leads down to the sliver couloir. We'd seen that um, obviously someone had skied it before us because the the slough had kind of cleared. Um, As we got down to the bottom, we ran into a group of four who informed us of the situation and what had happened, and that there were still two um, skiers that were waiting for a medivac in the near future. The sliver is very intimidating from a distance. Once you get up closer to it, the angle isn't as bad, but you can see it from the Bradley Taggart parking lot. And it's the most distinguishable line, the, the most aesthetic line you can see. So everyone wants to do it. It's something that's the next step up from all the moderate east faces. And, you know, from the top of shadow, it just calls out to you to be skied. It's a 25 foot wide, 20 foot wide couloir in spaces, sometimes it widens in spots, but it's a pretty straight up and down, beautiful pinner couloir that everyone wants to ski. Well, I mean, I've seen it in, in a number of different conditions, right? I mean, it can be, it's, it looks kind of like an elevator shaft and, you know, you can have three groups booting up it and one group skiing down it and everyone be safe depending on conditions. You know, the day that the sliver accident happened, those conditions were ripe for the first gear to kind of commit and to trigger a slough avalanche, which would clear the whole couloir. And, and anyone after that probably could have been in there simultaneously. I have seen multiple groups in there, not to say that's the best etiquette, but in the sliver couloir, it's very common to see two to three groups in there at the same time if avalanche conditions have been somewhat, you know, mitigated. It's one of the, what I consider like an introductory couloir in the Tetons. It doesn't mean it's safe. It's still very extreme terrain, but it is one that is very kind of like the closest branch after you kind of get your kind of feet under you. You know, for me, it was something that I did my third year at backcountry skiing in the Tetons where I felt a little more comfortable and, and everyone kind of advocated for that as the next step up from a moderate slope. So it's probably the, it's still scary terrain but it is the kind of, uh, you know, stepping stone up the the Teton ladder. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely, as everyone has noticed a shift just as pure numbers. I mean, I've seen a lot of people out there doing happy courses and, and doing the right things. A lot of people being guided these days. But the people that are kind of independent groups, there is a somewhat of a winner takes all attitude, you know, there's somewhat of a, a sharp edge to people kind of my group against your group who's going to get there first, kind of a, if we don't talk about it, then we don't have to kind of discuss who's going next, right, because there is a somewhat of a rat race attitude and, and if you do talk to someone and they say they're going to the same line that creates a complexity that a lot of people want to avoid. right? So you know, avi education is one thing, but having like a social emotional intelligence needed to, you know, discuss something uncomfortable or who might have to like step away from the the line that day. That's something that a lot of people aren't doing right there. There's some hellos, but there's almost a reluctance to say, Hey, what are you going to ski? And I think that stems a little bit from, you know, there was a kind of how I say it like a kind of taboo subject to ask what people were doing and I think a lot of that has to do with social media you're not supposed to like spray about a line so it doesn't get kind of overdone because once word spreads that creates a domino effect and a lot of people go there so there's been this kind of like don't talk about anything attitude and I think that's been to our detriment you know and I think there's somewhat of a a side country attitude in the high alpine these days kind of a You know, first person in the booter wins. If I get there first, I get to ski it, right? Everyone else be damned. And kind of that rat race feeling that I got to the resort. And and one of the reasons that I left the side country just because not a very welcoming environment. Well, I mean, when you're dealing with kind of a scarcity mindset, right? Whether that's a powder or the first one to the line wins. I mean, what I I try to do, and sometimes it's effective, sometimes it's not, is just create a welcoming environment where the, the mood is kind of like, we're in this together right? Because when they have like a me against you attitude, there's no teamwork, there's no camaraderie, right? So just just a smile, a hello, beautiful day, you know, what are you going to go ski, right? And then we can kind of discuss that and figure out a plan. You know, when we have large groups of people in tight spaces, there needs to be communication. And if there's not, things can go wrong, such as which happened in the, in the sliver. I think ego has always been a problem in backcountry skiing and, and in different chapters of the backcountry history, it's happened in different ways. And now we're just dealing with kind of an I was here before you attitude, therefore I kind of ski what I want to ski. And, and I think that causes a, a dangerous community ethic, right? Even about kind of how people are discussing this incident, it's a little disheartening that they're we're looking for a hero and a villain and that's a very natural human thing to do. But instead of looking at it as a community-wide learning experience, or, uh, experience there's all just finger pointing. And to me, I, I think that's a, a missed opportunity because I think, you know, a lack of social emotional intelligence is what caused this problem and what will cause future problems if we, we don't become a little more mature and responsible. And I guess my final thought is just like, you know, I can understand why the snowboarder took off in some ways, in the sense of, you kind of be run out of town in instances like this, and it becomes a very scary situation, so people are less likely to report. My kind of first gut reaction when getting there, my first impression was like, you know, accidents happen, this is the situation we're in. But, you know, I think sticking around just to make sure that everyone gets off the mountain safely is, is super important, right? And I wish we had the culture where that was possible, where you wouldn't fear being judged, you can kind of talk openly about this. Um, Just because I think that community support and that like, oh, sh-, uh, like that thing happened, but I'm still going to kind of be with you. Um, I think that's really important just
3: for c- convincing everyone that that community vibe is there. We were getting on the helicopter. I was like, guys, this is my first time on a helicopter. Like, this is sweet. <laughs> um, and then landed at Windy Point where Colin's roommate was waiting along with kind of the rest of, of the search and rescue team. I think the county sheriff was there. To kind of get my info and my statement and stuff like that. So then drove with Colin's roommate to the hospital from there. Was trying to get a hold of, like, my parents to let them know what was up. And uh, I, I didn't end up getting in touch with them until after I was done at the hospital. But being in the hospital was probably where it, like, really started to sink in. And, like, I really started to kind of feel it a little bit more and breathe a little bit. And then... Yeah, they took some x-rays, came in, and first thing they told me was that I didn't need surgery, which was great, and then showed me that I had the chip fracture on my ankle along with a sprain and some strained ligaments. So got the boot and was hanging out in the lobby getting my insurance stuff squared away. Colin came and picked me up, and uh, that's about to when I finally was able to talk to my parents and tell them what had happened and then went home for a little bit and just kind of started calling a bunch of friends and like, yeah, this is what happened today.
1: It could have been a lot worse.
3: Yeah, no, totally. I think based on the situation that did happen, we were pretty close to best-case scenario overall. I mean, yeah, a small fracture and some strained ligaments will heal pretty quick.
0: (laughs) It was definitely a relief when the helicopter came and was able to pick you up and to to take you out. I was like, all right, this is finished. You know, Ryan and Lewis were great and certainly wasn't maybe in the best mindset at that point to be like, Oh, let's go ski the rest of this. This is going to be sick was kind of, kind of just battle skiing it. Just like, okay, like every, you know, a couple hundred feet is a couple hundred feet closer to the parking lot. You know, finally in that last little bit, getting back to the parking lot, that flat section had that big sigh of relief of like, okay, like we're back at the parking lot. Today is done.
3: So we, we actually ended up eating dinner together that, that night. And that's kind of when we started talking about, like, okay, where was the mistake? What could we have done differently to avoid this? And um, I think we both agreed that, like, we felt good. We felt good about the snow conditions. Having a proper dialogue with the snowboarder. Probably would have kind of been the saving grace, even if it's just a like, hey, what's up? What's your plan? You know, what are what are you thinking about X, Y, Z? The snow, the slough. Do you have any concerns of what we're seeing right now? It is kind of sunny. You worried about that? You trying to boogie through? But just actually communicating with the other party and being open and willing to share our plan and know what their plan is and then be able to kind of work together so that that event hadn't happened basically would have, I think been the way to go. Even just like a quick 30 second to two minute conversation of, of that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I get the fact that people are protective of their lines and, you know, had had conditions been different, our decision-making would have, or could have, I mean, it's hard to tell, but our decision-making might have been different in that scenario. I'm kind of, like, kicking myself. I'm a pretty social guy. I Pretty much everyone I, I pass on the skin track or, or see out skinning or if they're digging a pit, you know, I'm like, hey, how's it going? Beautiful day. Like, hey, you finding anything funky? What's up? Like, stoked to be out here. And for whatever reason, you know, the, the this guy who came past this kind of head down, I, I didn't. I think, yeah. I think I said it before, like I say it with, you know, most of my kids when there's issues with middle schoolers or with adults, most things come down to a lack of communication. And this is it. And we're, I think, really fortunate that we could both be here talking and and that, you know, your your injuries are what they are considering what happened. Um, And I hope that people listening to this can take that to kind of reflect in their own and You know, just communicate with other people. They pass you if you pass them or if you're just out. I think it could all be avoided.
1: Thank you for listening to The Fine Line. I'm Matt Hanson. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Jackson Hole backcountry. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.